Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and Outskirts visionary, Gus Morton, invite you to put your socks on. Winning and losing, training and racing, pro, not pro. All of it comes down to understanding what works and what doesn't. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Welcome back to Put Your Socks On. I'm Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Gus Morton. Today we're talking about stage 12 of the 2019 Tour de France, a 209-kilometer jaunt with an 11K neutral from Toulouse to Bagnères de Bigorre. What's up, Gus? Bobby, nothing. Just tuning into the Tour de France. Great stage today and a great show coming up. We've got a little recap. We're going to hear from the superfan and we're covering the art of descending, which is an absolute art. And we have... Very special guest on the show today as well. The descending coach of Thibaut Pinot and Mike Woods, Oscar Says. And he's going to teach us how to go downhill fast and why descending has become so important in the Tour de France nowadays. But before we get to that, Bobby, let's get our daily dose of the Road ID Tour Trivia. All right. It's time for today's daily dose of Road ID Tour Trivia. Head on over to roadid.com slash tdf. Today's question... Who was the last rider to win a stage finish in De Bagnères Bigorre? Go to roadid.com slash tdf to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, which is a Thule T2 Pro XT bike rack. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash tdf. I could do with one of those T2 Pro XT bike racks, Bobby. Let's talk about today's stage and what a stage it was. First day in the high mountains for the tour. Well, second day, but uh, first of what's going to be a pretty intense couple of weeks. How did the uh, how did the stage go? How did the stage start out? Man, it was a fast start. I think the average speed for the first 45 minutes or so was upwards of, you know, 52, 53K an hour, which is just flying. You had a bunch of groups trying to get off. And like we spoke about in some early earlier episodes, that that guy with the velvet rope was a little bit stingy today. He wasn't letting anybody off. And then all of a sudden, all at once, it's like he turned away and went to the bathroom and left that velvet rope down. And 42 guys got up the road. 42. It was amazing. What is going on? That was like it's like it's not that's not a breakaway. That's a split. Yeah. That's like a that's like a mini peloton up the road. Can you imagine the confusion with all the the follow cars like um you know following a 42 person breakaway like it was probably felt exactly like it was at the back of the the caravan where they were to begin with. And but also imagine trying to manage that. Like imagine the 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 like frantic look through the like race result sheet as they're calling out the numbers of the race being like okay like, he's not a threat, he's not a threat, he's not a threat. And no one was a threat. It's remarkable that, like, not one good guy on the overall slipped into that move. Yeah, can you imagine if they're going, the breakaway gets established, it's got two or three minutes, and oops, we forgot to mention this one guy who's only three minutes behind in GC. Then you would have seen just absolute panic. But 
classic the, stitch up, but the unfortunately boys played, that wasn't the case. Played pretty fair today. There was no one trying to slip into that group that shouldn't have been there because I think, like we said yesterday, everyone's got the the time trial tomorrow on their mind already. Today, there's a few interesting things that happened early. Like big group goes, right? And one thing I want to make a note of, uh, well, a couple of things. Nitzolo abandoned, obviously. We saw him yesterday come down really hard. And, uh, and by all accounts, he's one of the nice guys of the peloton. So it's sad to see him go home early but the interesting one was uh rohan dennis we saw him yes. active early on and then pull the pin and then a very weird statement mid-stage released by the team saying we've opened an investigation into why he abandoned like this isn't congress where you know what i mean <laughs> we've opened an investigation what did you have any idea what went on did you see that what i missed it I did, and I'm super upset because he was obviously my pick of the day for tomorrow's time mm. trial, being the reigning world champion in that discipline. Yeah, I I tried to figure it out. I was searching the social media sites. I was texting some buddies, and you know, we we all know that Rowan is is a very emotional rider, mm-hmm. and. To be one of the first guys attacking, and then next thing we hear his name called is abandoning. I just wonder if he kind of had a little bit of a tantrum and then just decided, okay, that's it. Because unless he was sick, yeah. but if you're sick, I couldn't imagine being one of the first guys to attack and be aggressive. So I guess it, we're going to have to wait. Maybe by now, because we go on to the pod immediately after the, the finish of the race, we don't listen to all the post-race analysis and information that maybe is out there by, at this time. But I just hope he's okay, number one, because that, that was a big disappointment. I was really hoping that he would um, you know, save his energy and, and really pop off a big one to, tomorrow. Yeah, it does seem quite a dramatic exit. And, um, and yeah, like you said, hopefully everything's all okay. We'll try and circle back to that um, at the end of the show and hopefully we can potentially get an answer um, from one of our producers by then. So we'll look to that. But for now, let's keep going. Yeah, j- there was a couple of big cat ones. Yeah, just, Wellens was in just the break. some general notes. Uh, we had a cat mm-hmm. four that was only like one point, I, I think, available at the top. And Wellens, the, the KOM leader, took that at um, kilometer 62.5. Then they had the the green jersey sprint or the daily sprint right yep. at the base of the parasword. And this one, Sagan had a little bit of hot sauce on that sprint today. I don't think he was messing around like he has the last couple days uh, because he still had some sprinters up there taking him to the line. But yeah, there was a few sprinters he, in that in that group. Who was? I said there were a few sprinters in that group looking for that point, so... It was kind of like their finish line a little bit for today, right? Yeah, yeah, it really was. But imagine doing a sprint like that and then having to start the the Parasword. So the Parasword yeah. was the first Cat 1. Very well-known climb. Everyone knows knows that climb. Everyone knows that descent. Mm-hmm. Wellens took the KOM points there, solidifying him in that King of the Mountains classification. Then, um, yeah, then things started to, to break up a little bit on that second climb. You started to see the tactics coming into play. Um, everyone was looking at Simon Yates, and he was just yeah. the tactical master on that climb. He let a bunch of guys kind of go up the road, blow their cookies a little bit, and then before we knew it, at the top of the climb, he was in in the group. He was along with with Molberger. They were leading over the top of the 
the I'm going to really butcher this again, the Horquette de Ancien, uh, another Cat 1. And Bilbao from, from Astana wasn't that far behind. He caught on pretty quickly on that descent. And those three guys really just kind of worked together very, very well and just totally killed the morale of those guys mm. that came over uh, the top of the climb not that far behind i think they were like 30 seconds behind yeah and a little bit more i think was it a little bit more and you just figured that like maybe they come back on but you know those guys <laughs> those guys worked very well together and then coming into the sprint uh my money was on Mulberger because this guy i mean his team has been just ripping it this year they have so many wins on in by so many members of their team in so many races and this was a guy that took Philippe like all the way to the line in the Dauphiné the warm-up race for the Tour de France but man Simon had some really good intel and then the mental and physical ability to execute whatever his director was telling him because I don't really look at Simon as being a tactical sprinter because he's never really put in those situations but man he he absolutely did that perfectly picture perfect uh i think he got a little bit of help from bilbao because i was thinking bilbao is going to have to attack because he has no chance here but he actually was the one that pinned molberger into the barriers but Simon... Yeah, be, gave him, opened the door for him. He, he, yeah, I mean, Simon tried to stay on that right-hand uh, barrier, but he did leave a gap. So if Molberger had the juice to get loose, he could have popped through there. But the it just goes to show you how Simon was not only tactically strong, but obviously saved a couple, uh, you know, a little bit more on the climb and that descent and was able to do a better sprint at the end. So... Coll- co- Total hats off and congratulations to him. His team is uh, now got two stage wins in the pocket, which definitely is nice because now we're getting into the real meat of the race with the time trial tomorrow. So to have two stage wins under their belt, I think things are a little bit easier, less stressful at that team. Exactly right. And that shows that uh, that Yates is, you know, we saw him getting dropped early on, but uh, like earlier, sorry, in the tour on purpose, obviously. Um, and today showed that he's got fresh legs. And so, mate, he could be, um, you know, he's got his stage win now. He's going to be a good help, I think, for his brother in the coming days. And evidently, he's moving quite well. So, well done to him today. We've got the Superfan coming up. Next up, it's Superfan. The Superfan, you there? Let's, uh, let's talk. Good finish today. I love a small group making it to the finish together and the dynamics of trying to figure out who is going to take it on the line. So it was a nice surprise because I definitely picked Mobile as well. Uh, we're two weeks in, coming up on two weeks into the tour. We're starting to see a lot more crashes and DNFs. Mental stress and fatigue is something no analytics can really quantify. Is there a way to train mental toughness, Bobby? Is it just cumulative experience or does mental freshness come down to superior recovery protocols? What are some things, you know, you talk to your writers about um, in order to get them, you know, toughened up a bit mentally? Yeah. First off, let's just say this cycling is not for the weak hearted. There are many, many, many bad days compared to good days. So if you're not at least average to above average on that mentally strong side I'm sorry, I don't care how physically talented you are, you're, gonna, you're not going to make it in this sport. So I always tell my, my riders, listen, 
every day that you have a bad day, just delete that, that day from your, from your memory. Because if you keep piling those on, that's going to like overtake your hard drive and basically burn you out. So always look for that little tiny silver lining that happened during the day that maybe you did this right. Maybe you did that right. Okay, ultimately something bad happened or you, you failed to execute your plan properly. But always look for that silver lining. But I, I think, and Gus, you know, maybe, maybe you can chime in here too. I think mm. that's part of being a cyclist is having that hard head that, you know what, I'm going to make it through this no matter what. And, you know, that, that never say die attitude. What do you think? A hundred percent, Bobby. And I think like, I mean, you, yeah, you, you said it exactly right. Like it doesn't matter how good you are physically. If you're not mentally ready for this, then you've got no chance. And there's a lot of things that come into play in that regard. Like, and, and, and today's stage is a perfect example, right? Yates, like he was able to think at the finish. He was able to be aware that like, wait, I need to like collect my thoughts. I need to, you know, execute this plan. And he did and he did it to perfection. And the same goes for someone in the race who's tired and their ability to think, you know, we saw got him the stage win today versus someone who's like, you know, Two day, three days ago, um, when those when those teams lost, a lot of riders lost all the GC time on the flat stage. Right, the ability to turn around from that and be like, "No, this isn't the end. I can like be mature about this. I can think through it, and I can move forward." And I think that's um, because cycling's like I think that's one of the most crucial um, elements of a champion because cycling is so often extremes. It goes from being everything's good to like bad crash or split in the bunch and you've missed it or, you know, someone pips you on the line for a stage win. And so it's about being able to handle mentally as well as physically like, you know, these extremes. Like you think about it, like you win a stage, the difference between winning and coming second, as we saw yesterday, can be, you know, a quarter of an inch. But it's everything in terms of the result, right? You know, everyone's talking about Caleb Ewan, but we're not really talking about Dylan Grunewagen for yesterday's stage in terms of winning. So I think that, yeah, exactly right. There's a lot that goes into that. And I think that if if you can like if you can have perspective and you can be mature about the position that you're in, you're gonna go a long way in the sport. I, I, I do have to interject something that was mm-hmm. really bugging me from the beginning of the tour. And that yep. was watching Simon Yates basically the caboose from day one sitting in the back total cbf didn't really care to be up in the race i'm like wait a second this guy won the tour of spain what is he doing Mm -hmm. sitting back there and day after day i'm like wow he is really committed to this and we all knew that he was here to help his brother uh in the in the upcoming mountain stages right but i had to start questioning man this guy is either uber confident and uber patient or he's just not there. But man, he answered those questions today. And absolutely, those other two guys that were in the breakaway with him, they're up there fighting in the crosswinds. Mulberger has, has Sagan all the time. Um, you know, Bilbao is looking after Full Song. And Mr. Calm, Cool, and Collected CBF was sitting on the back. And man, it may have been the difference today in the finale. I may I I 100% agree with you. Um and I think that 
you know, we know Mitchelton Scott, we know Matt White. He's always playing pretty wild tactics, but always, you know, a, a very master tactician. And um, I think those guys think a lot about this and there's obviously a plan that they're executing and, and it's, mate, it looks like it's working because they've got two stage wins and uh, and it's evident that their that two boys in the Yates brothers are on good form. Superfan. Well, thank you, Superfan. Ever wanted a t-shirt featuring Bob Roll riding an ostrich? I mean, who has it, right? To celebrate the 2019 edition of the tour, Road ID has re-released their Bob Roll-inspired Let's Ride t-shirt that was a cult favorite when it was initially released in 2012. These classy gems are only available in very limited quantities. So if you're an admirer of Bob or ostriches, you better hurry over to roadid.com slash bob before they're gone. Let's move on to today's theme, the chunk of the show, and that's descending. We saw a 30-kilometer descent to the finish today, and whilst it was relatively uneventful, we've seen over the recent years descending becoming more and more and more and more and more important in professional bike racing. I mean, as athletes look for those seconds in places that you, you wouldn't typically find them. Bobby, like... Can you kind of describe to me what it's like being in the front group coming off a mountain like the Tourmalet, a mountain like the Parasaur today, and you're racing for glory, you've just done like a max effort up the climb, and you're in that front group. Like, what is it like tearing ass downhill? I have to start off by saying times have changed. <laughs> when, when I was racing, it seemed like all the guys up in the front were like, hey, let's just get down this. Let's have the race happen on the climb and the flats in between, but let's just make sure that we get down this descent in one piece. I don't remember having to really be under pressure that that much. I wasn't the best descender, but I wasn't the worst descender. I mean, there was times in your career that, depending on the equipment that you have, the bike, the tires, you're, you're one year you're better than another, depending on the equipment that you have. But it all started about, I'd say probably about 10 years ago, so very... Soon mm-hmm. after I retired, I started noticing these kamikaze guys that would just basically stay in the group on the climb and then absolutely bomb the descent. And it started a lot with, with Thomas Volkler. He was one of those guys that even towards the end of my career were like, what are you doing, man? And then it just kind of became a fad. And I'm, I'm glad I'm not in the sport anymore because these guys are going so fast. The equipment, the clothing, everything, you're much more aerodynamic. You know, disc brakes, so everyone has a little bit more confidence in their braking. The tires are better. The wheels are better. The the frames are better. Everything's better. But Mm. the consequence is still the same. And maybe even more so now than before when we, I believe that we used used to descend at slower, slower speeds, that... When you crash going 50 or 60K an hour, bad things are going to happen. And we, we've seen it. We've seen some you know, bad crashes. So I was one of the guys that always wore a helmet. And yeah, I'd say if you Google, Googled my images on, um, on the computer, you would see probably 70% of the photos there with me without a helmet. But let me tell you, I would take my helmet off when we were allowed to. Now you're not allowed to do that anymore on the mm. climb and I'd put it kind of on my handlebars and as soon as we got even close to the top 
of the of the climb, I would put on my helmet for the descent. I couldn't imagine blowing down some of these descents right now without a helmet. It's just incomprehensible to me. But when I start, when I got off the bike and moved over into the coaching role, um, I'd have to say I was much more nervous watching the team that I was working for, the riders or my personal clients on the descents. On the climbs, you're like, okay, these guys got this. But I remember not breathing like an entire descent. I remember one of the descents was that famous one where Jean-Louis Augustin was on the front and he crashed and kind of looked like he went off into like this lunar landscape down, down like a ravine. And my team at that time was CSC. We had Carlos Sastra. We had the Schleck brothers. Yep. And man, I was just praying that everyone got down that descent in one piece. So for me, man, what, what they're doing now is just a little bit incomprehensible. And maybe it changes a little bit when you have, have family, uh, when you're young and you're a little bit more aggressive. That's one thing. But, man, you start seeing the fear. And I started seeing the fear quite a bit towards the end of my career, and especially now when I go riding. Mate, like for me, when I first stopped racing at 21 and then when I came back to the peloton at 25, it was night and day. Uh, and I don't know, like I still can't work out if it was just me personally or if like like shit in the the bunch had just gotten way more gnarly. But like I used to, ne- I can't ever remember having an issue descending. And then when I got back in the bunch at 25, I was just like, oh my God, these guys are crazy. Like everyone has a death wish here. Um, so it's definitely become a much bigger part of of uh, of the sport. And we're going to in a minute, we've got a, a, an awesome guest today. Um, Oscar says who we're going to who's a, who's a descending coach among other things and, and we'll get to him in a moment but just before we do I want to ask you I mean you've raced with some absolute legends of the descending game at least uh, in terms of cycling, cycling iconography who, who are the biggest legends at least when you were racing yeah the first one that comes to mind is Sean Yates he was the one that taught Lance George myself pretty much all the Americans on Motorola how to descend, at least to the best of our abilities. My ability wasn't nearly as good as a guy like like George or Lance or Sean, but I think I improved. Mm-hmm. Um, my teammates, there was always Paolo Salvadelli. Everyone was enamored about how fast that guy could go downhill. For me, Stuart O'Grady, uh, Tor Hushoft, Cancellara, and then there was this one guy, uh, uh, Nibali was, was obviously quite good, but I never really raced with him so much. But there was one guy in particular named Marco Celestino. And this guy was, again, one of just those, those fearless dudes going downhill. But the thing that I noticed with especially a guy like Nibali or Cancellara or Salvadelli is it never looked like they were trying to go fast. It never looked like they were on the limit. It never looked like they were taking a risk. They were just putting seconds on you around every single turn. And that was frustrating because you, you expect if a guy's going to be dropping you on the descent, you want to see him like jam into the corner, not hit the brakes, almost go skidding off the road, and then stand up and sprint out of the corner. But these guys, their technique, man, they just kept that terminal velocity all the way through the turn. And 10 turns later, you're, you're, you're a minute behind them. Descending in the Gruppetto versus descending in the front group. We never see the Gruppetto going down a hill 
on television, yet they always seem to make up time on the front guys who we see on television and we're all like, holy shit, these guys are mad. What's the difference? Well, luckily, I don't have that much experience. And, you know, the the time that I did have in the Gruppetto, it was definitely broken up between the guys that were descending fast and the guys like me that were just kind of average. And we knew we would catch catch on on the next climb or the next valley road. But I used to hear these amazing stories from Stuart, from Tor Hushoft, from Robbie McEwen, from Magnus Bagstedt. Uh, they would come into the bus in the Gruppetto, sometimes finishing 20 to 30 minutes behind. And they would be more animated telling the story about how fast they went on the descent or how much time they made up than hmm. the guys that were in the front group maybe going for the win. It was like they really got a kick out of that. And man, you're right. If, if they would have had a camera in the back on some of those mountain stages. I think you we would be mentioning even some different names compared to the ones that I just mentioned. But there was always there was always that those guys that you wanted to look out for. And there was quite mm-hmm. a few of those and those guys kind of get a reputation in the bunch that man once you get that reputation people are just flicking around you at every opportunity they can because they just don't don't trust you. And races are now and have been in the past, decided on descents. If you pick the wrong wheel, you're in trouble. I really look back to 2005 when I won Nice. I won it by making a split-second decision on the top of a climb close to the finish, about 30K from the finish. We had just gone full gas up this climb. I saw that Fasa Bartolo was driving it on the front with Kim Kirshen, Fabian Cancellara, um, uh, Juan Antonio Flecha, and this one guy in particular who was probably their GC guy named Dario Frigo. And right then and there, I said, you know what? This descent, I am popping around this guy. So I popped around him. Fabian and Fletcher and Kim Kirshen just absolutely take off. And at the bottom of the climb, I mean, I was definitely white-knuckled on that one. Those guys were hitting it. We got to the bottom of the climb, and we had a gap, and Frigo was gone. So if I would have stayed behind Frigo, I would not have won Perinese that year. And long story short, we wound up taking 30 seconds uh, from the group that day, and I wound up winning the Perinese by eight seconds over Valverde. So it just goes to show you, even back in 2005, races, races were decided on descents. I can't imagine what, what it's like now. And that's exactly it. We're seeing it more and more, races being decided on descents and also riders taking a real focus on attacking descents and getting better at descents. Um, that is a great intro to our guest today, who we have here. Oscar Sainz, Oscar, lifelong cyclist. He raced BMX and then downhill mountain bikes for many years. And he's now become the go-to guy for a lot of uh, professional road riders looking to up their game on downhill, looking to, you know, either use it as a position that they can attack in the downhills or even just stay on terms with, with what is evidently becoming one of the most decisive parts of the sport. Oscar. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you, mate. Now, I'm good friends with Mike Woods, and, uh, and, and that's how I came to, to hear about you and, uh, and know about you. What I want to first sort of ask you is, I guess, like, how did you become, you know, your background's in mountain biking. How did you become the go-to guy for, as a descending coach, for a lot of road riders? It, it started now 10 years ago. So I, I agree with a lot of the uh, 
all of the stuff that, on the conversation you were having with uh, with Bobby. Um, so ten years ago, I got a call. I was uh, obviously when I stopped racing, I quit racing, and I early, you know, soon move into coaching downhill. And then from downhill, I went to the technique side of cross country mountain biking. And and one day, I just got a call from from a road team. Uh, Giant had a back in the day a cross country team sponsored by Rabobank, and I just got a, a you know a call from the Rabobank guys, and they said like, look, we're having some issues with some of the riders, our main riders, our GC riders, and we will really like to try and see if you can help us. So that was the you know the very beginning. So I just you know I just got a call from you know from a discipline to another, jumping from one to another, up until I got to the road cycling. I mean, I followed road cycling a long time ago. Uh, maybe uh, I think the first time I saw a difference on a downhill and how can you lose a race for, for me was I think it was like Volta Volta España maybe in 93 probably Rominger versus Zule and that was the first time I saw some guy really having some issues when it was raining and uh, ended the sense uh, and then after that it was like you know 10 years ago when it just got this call and everything got started and I think like for a lot of people that watch the sport, right? We we look at a guy like Sagan or Alaphilippe and you look at them and you're like, you watch them go downhill and you're like, they're just mad. Like, they're just completely crazy and that's why they're good. They don't have a fear of, of, of like any consequences. But it's obviously, there's a lot more to it. And like, what is it, I guess, like is fear, like can you kind of dispel that? Can you kind of talk about like, is it just someone being completely fearless going down a hill or is it like a lot of technique and a lot of you know skill that goes into this? Yeah, mainly I would I would I would say that especially in road cycling because I, I think it's not in the nature of the sport really to that technical side is is not it's been slowly coming into the sport but it's, it hasn't been there for a long time so I think mainly there is two I would say like two sides or two phases one is your bike handling skills and how good you are technically on the bike and the other would be more like the mental approach to it there's people obviously genetically better than others but i would say like there are some people that's got actually the brain that that works uh more like a pilot and mm-hmm. there's people that you can see it one of the first tests i do with many of the of the pro tour guys is like i see them either on a car or i see them maybe in a go-kart track um and then i just and I ask them to drive and, and then I can see like I don't pay attention to the driving skills because that has nothing to do with the bike. But definitely you can see how the, bike, how the rider actually approaches distances, depth, uh, speed, and when does he start braking, how does he steers, all those sorts of things. And then, for example, when you go on the go-kart track, you can see the rider actually like improves lap by lap by changing slightly the line and he can improve without saying anything without absolutely not going in what what driving technique is nothing just just only to see like how he approaches the whole situation so for, for me that's this is basically one one of the most important thing i'd say and then the whole bike handling the whole bike technique which is something different and how is then your approach i guess like you know you, you obviously like you get them out there and you do the, the go-kart stuff but then when you get them on the bike you just mentioned it then it's mental as well as technique that's becoming more prevalent. How do you approach, like, for example, if you get someone who's just absolutely horrible at going downhill, you know, are you 
kind of motor pacing them downhill and showing them the line or are you getting them to think differently? Like what's the approach? If, if someone really like needs help, I normally approach first on the technique side. So I, I basically make a difference between um, what will be reading reading the road as good as you can and anticipating all the corners. So that, that's, that's what you said, you know, it's like you need to be always, you know, not only not thinking, but actually seeing what's going to happen in the next corner or in the next two. So you need to be like always heads up, actually trying to read the road, you know, the earliest possible. And, and then we will go to, you know, techniques on how to handle the bike better, the braking, the body position that actually will improve the, you know, the technique and, and, and the riding overall. And then from there, slowly I go into more like, you know, the way that the rider actually approaches it. There's many riders, especially climbers that they say like, okay, I don't have no problem. I am at the bottom of a climb. I will start climbing. Everything is okay. Up until three, four, three, two kilometers before the summit. And then I start to stress out because I don't know exactly what to do. And I said, man, you, I have the problem the other way around. You know, when I'm at the top yeah. of the hill, it's all fine. When I'm at the bottom, I'm stressing. So <laughs> once, you know, to, to see on that situation, to me, it's more a little bit like uh, to get them on a, I would say like a, on a, the, they can grab or actually like learn a few, a few technical resources that they can use. And then we will train them isolated and we will train them in different stages during the whole period, the whole year. Uh, we will do, you know, exercises on the gravel and dirt with gravel bikes, cyclocross bikes, mountain bikes, etc., etc. But I really want them to have like a handful of skills that they can actually use and keep progressing. And slowly with that technique, they will understand that there is a total different mindset when you climb a mountain and when you descend a mountain. So to me, there is is a big difference. Is a inflection point when they get at the top of the hill, they need to switch off that climbing, that cyclist, that athlete switch, and they need to find the pilot switch. They need to find the descending guy. They need to find that sharp brain. But at the same time, I totally agree. They need to be like relaxed. They need to be breathing. And when you're going really fast, you don't have, uh, you don't have sensation that you're going fast. You just, you know, you're just looking and watching and then heading to the points you think and breaking happens automatically. You just are going fast, but you have, you don't have the notion that everything is coming to you real fast. You just, you just see it coming, and you just act as it comes. So it's like about teaching people to become instinctual almost, and like kind of switch off like that rational brain and just go, okay, I'm going to completely go on on feel and on intuition, but based off of like a development of these techniques. Yes. They have, for example, like when I climb, I, I ask the riders, look, I don't have the ability to climb. I was never a good climber. And so I asked some of the cyclists, what do you do when you actually climb and, you know, you are breathing the top of your lungs, your legs are hurting and, and burning and you're in pain. What do you do to actually live with this pain for the next 10 kilometers? And, and some of them, they, they don't have an answer. So it's like, I want to have that answer because then I can actually like give you probably a hint or an idea. What would be the answer if you ask the same thing in a downhill? They have, they have to have something to actually, uh, you know, kind of like unplug from that pain, focus on either it's the breathing or the cadence they have or the pressure on the pedals, whatever they have. They, they must have, you know, everyone is different. 
And then I want them to have an idea of what's happening when they climb to actually go to the top of the hill and be able to change that mindset into the new mindset, which is descending. But that's got to be hard, right, Oscar? For Because the, the consequences are still the same. Uh, when you crash, it's still going to hurt and you're still going to be ripped up and your confidence is going to get shattered. When I was on CSC, one time we had all 30 guys out on the top of this climb and our director sportif, Bjarne Reese, said, okay, guys, we're going to practice descending today. So we're going to go as fast as we can down this descent. And I'm sitting there already half a coach saying, this is a recipe for disaster. And mind you, we did have Fabian Conchalara, we had Stuart O'Grady, we had a bunch of other really good descenders. And I, Jens and I kind of stayed at the back and just kind of did our thing. And we we're like rolling our eyes thinking this, this was a terrible idea. And sure enough, not even halfway down the descent, we had two guys in the, in the, in the ditch crashed. And when we got down to the bottom, Bjarne was like, maybe that wasn't the best idea. And of course, ding, 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 it wasn't. <laughs> but other than putting a guy in like football pads and a football helmet, how can you get guys to actually practice going faster and take it to that edge and possibly crash without getting hurt? I mean, that seems to me like it's, it's, it's next to impossible to just say, oh, no, just go faster. And, but, yeah, if you go that one bit faster and then you're in the ditch, you're, you're, you could be out of the race. You could be out of training for a week, two weeks, a month. But what – Besides telling a guy just to go faster, what are like the top three things that you would check off the list when, when somebody asks you, how do I become a better descender? That will, be, that will be the answer itself. It's like, okay, you can ask someone to go faster, but you need to have actually something that makes you go faster, something to actually focus on, something to improve. I would say the main thing would be having a better ability of reading the road. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's the main thing. That's the most important thing. Um, uh, what I really su- you know, suggest or I really like my advice on people that has trouble at reading and anticipating properly the road, I ask them to use a, a simulator. Even if it's like a nice video game with a card and everything, that can develop your, you know, your reading. That can, that can improve your, your anticipation. And then you know, when, you have, when the rider has a better skill on, on the position on the bike, and and has better braking and we try this bit by bit slowly by slowly progressing so normally i take like a short section of the road and we dissect that section and you know i ask them to actually corner and pay attention to cornering we will corner in both sides you know back and forth back and forth a little section we will actually do exercises in braking i think the brakes can be used a lot better than a lot of them are using and you know, and then the position on the bike. Once they have developed that, which is you know, fairly fast, like probably in, in a few sessions, they have developed enough skill. So they immediately start feeling a bit more confident. That doesn't mean crashing is not going to happen. On two wheels, you're really exposed. One thing is training on a really quiet or maybe even like a, a close road environment. And the other thing is actually competing or racing. There's a lot more into it there's a lot more variables and hazards that can happen but mainly will be that like slowly slowly going up you know my main my main thing is like i want the cyclist to crash not to crash or to crash the less amount possible to save energy 
as much as they can because you know I've seen especially now with power meters what's the difference between a rider that can is actually being able to descend and a rider that isn't or is not not as good and then the last one is like we will go faster but that's gonna that's gonna come with some time this is not a a magical recipe where it's like you know in 10 sessions you know you will be like one of the best guys this is it might take more time some people just gotta you know a, a, you know, can grab it faster and actually like improve a lot faster than others. But it's something that requires time. Um, they have been developed. There's, you know, cyclists that, you know, if they are not good in time trial, they can make them better at time trial. If it's a GC rider that some people struggle a lot in, in climbing, they can improve them in, in, into the climbing. So it's more of an overall rider. The sending is exactly the same. It is, it is one, one part that if you really struggle, you hmm. you you can improve it's it's uh it's uh maybe you want you won't become one of the best guys in the world one of the fastest ones but it's definitely in, improvable by a by a whole lot mate thank, thank you, you so much, much. Oscar, oscar i appreciate your time and some insightful knowledge there like it, it's sort of uh becoming evident that um you know, as with climbing, as with aerodynamics, as with all of these things in the sport, it's becoming more and more of a science and, and descending is the next frontier uh, where riders can make time. So, Oscar, I really appreciate you for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Take care. Hey, Gus. Man, we missed out. We should have been playing video games and going to go-kart tracks to, to improve our descending, huh? Dude, I know. I, I was just thinking, like, when he was saying that, and I was like... I used to play a lot of video games like motor racing games when I was younger, like 14, 15, but I wouldn't have touched them since then. And maybe that was my problem when I came back. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't playing enough Gran Turismo. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that is the safest thing. I think if you're going to do that, do it by yourself because have you ever been to a go-kart track with 20 or 30, uh, cyclists, man, dude, it is bedlam. I mean, there's yeah. no rules. Somebody always gets hurt. There's always somebody at the chi- the Cairo the, the next day, bad back or went under the fence. Man, <laughs> have have you ever gone to a go kart track with uh, with your teammates? Dude, I love the go kart track. Like, and I go a little bit crazy at the go kart track. Like, it's the same when if you're like with the team and you're like, oh, let's rent mountain bikes and like just have a recovery day on mountain bikes. Like, I did that once. Had to have a total shoulder reconstruction so they completely <laughs> obliterated it like like i'm that person as soon as they get in that environment i'm just like hell yeah let's do this and then always end up getting hurt so yes i know <laughs> i know and love those situations but also hate them let's talk about stage 13 time trial huge day tomorrow bobby oh. a decisive day we saw the gc guys today you know, almost looked like they took the day off on that last climb. Everyone was just willing just to toodle on up there and we saw the time the time gap go out from sort of six minutes to near 10 by the finish there. So to what's obviously everyone was saving it for tomorrow. Let's talk about it. What's what's tomorrow look like? Yeah, the time trial day, always one of my, my favorites. So stage 13, it's from Po to Po. It's a 27.2 kilometer, pretty rolling individual TT. I wouldn't say it's super mm-hmm. technical. Obviously, I haven't seen the roads, but from, from the race book, it, it looks pretty straightforward. There's three time checks out there for the guys that take radios and, and care about that sort of stuff. So there's one at 7.7, one at 15.5, and one at 21.9. Uh, 
like I said, looks like a pretty straightforward course. Most of the GC guys, if not all of them, have already seen it either in person or via a video recon. But all the GC guys and specialists that have been saving some energy for this stage are definitely going to go and recon it in the morning. So no one's going to be caught out. Everyone's going to know exactly what's coming up. But remember, this late in the race, you have a little bit different legs than you would have like on a one-day time trial when when everyone's rested. So you're going to see some... GC guys that normally wouldn't be up in the front on a one-day time trial, and you're going to see those those specialists that we haven't really talked about. So it's always a combination of who has the best legs, who's le- le- who's planned ahead for this, who has more gas left in the tank, and yeah, that's why I think you're right. Today was pretty uneventful, especially on that last climb because everyone was saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna just grip it and rip it tomorrow." So the, the riders not concerned about the GC will take this as an active rest day. They may stay in bed. They probably won't even go out and recon the course because they're not going to be taking any risks on the climb. So if, for, for a sprinter, this, this is one of those stages that you look forward to. You still have to finish within the time limit, but most of these guys know that if they just go steady state, that they'll finish easily within the time limit. Um, you know, the technique on a, on a day like tomorrow is start fast and and get faster you hear a lot of thing a lot of talk about negative splits like going actually faster in the second half than the first half one of my old coaches always used to tell me to unroll the carpet and you know that visual i think i've said before on this podcast is you know envision a big huge roll of carpet you know it's very very big very heavy and you push it over and it starts to unroll and as it unrolls, it gets faster and faster and faster. And when that carpet unrolls, that's got to be the finish line. So that's a very good visual for people doing a time trial. This only being 27.2 kilometers, you're going to have, have to start aggressively. If you're going for the, the win or want to take the most out of your, your competitors, you can't just roll off and then build into it. you got to start pretty aggressive and then just make sure that you can stay at that level the whole entire time. But um, tomorrow, the big thing, you know, riding your bike fast is, you know, these guys are used to that. But time trial days are quite special. Let's just kind of back it up. So in the morning, you wake up, you want to go out and recon the course. So you have a little bit of breakfast, you get all your stuff together. Hopefully you're staying in pose so you can just ride over to the, to the, to the start and you recon the course. And Reconning the course, I always like to do it individually because if I was sitting there riding with someone, maybe they would be riding harder than I wanted to or easier than I wanted to or you're talking, but you need to have absolute pinpoint laser focus on every turn, every descent. So I don't advise riding next to a guy or listening to music. You just need to be really paying attention to all those little nuances in the road. Then you come back and, you know, that's when you have to have your your meal. And I would advise between three and four hours prior to the, the race, depending on how you digest food, that you finish that last bite of food between three and four hours. I'd say for most people, three and a half hours. Then you just go and hopefully, like I said, you're close to the start. You just go and chill. You don't go and, you know, stress, you don't get on the phone, you don't go on the internet, just go up and try to rest your eyeballs for a little bit. Because 
sooner or later, very soon, you're going to have to head over to the start. Um, I would say that an hour before the start, you have like a little snack to really just boost up the, the blood sugar. And mm-hmm. then you get on the, the turbo trainer for, for a day like this, for a time trial like this, this deep into the tour. I don't think you have to do too long of a warm up. So you get your bike on, say, 35 minutes before the start. You do a 25 minute warm up, which consists of some easy spinning, a nice little progression, maybe a minute or two of a pretty hard kind of VO2 level effort, and then some activation sprints. And then you have to think already about replacing that glycogen that you use during that warm up. But in that sort of short focus warm up, you're not, you shouldn't be expending too much. But that's when you take a gel. That's when you switch from drinking water to having a sports drink. And then you want to have a very smooth, mellow transition from getting off the bike. You go into the bus. You get, your, you get toweled off because you're obviously sweaty. You get that skin suit on. You get those time trial gloves, time trial booties, helmet, and you roll over to the start. In, in the Tour de France, they always want you there 15 minutes before the start because of the whole bike check thing. But I advise, if, if possible, have your bike pre-checked by the mechanics prior to the race so that you can just roll over there less than five minutes before so that you're not you're not wasting that that warm-up that you just did because if you got off the bike 10 minutes before you're you're leaving to go to the start and then you were sitting over there for another 10 minutes that's 20 minutes i i don't think that's the the best idea and then once the race starts you know you got to be on it from the gun and if you burnt through all your glycogen stores earlier in the race the day before or during that warm-up, that's definitely going to affect your pacing schedule for, for the race. So although it's only 27.2 kilometers, it's an all-day mental focus. And that's it, right? For those leaders, it's it's another stressful day at the Tour de France because everything comes into it, as you said, timing of food, being able to get out in the course correctly, you know, access to the start and finish, you know, from the bus and, 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 and all that and having bike pre-checked. So there's a lot going on and a lot you don't realize, like you said, uh, for it only being, uh, only being a 27K stage. And the staff, the staff are crucial on a day like this, taking all that yeah. planning, you know, doing all this the night before so that you know exactly what time you're doing the recon, exactly what time you're coming back, exactly what time you're eating, exactly what time your, your bike is on the turbo trainer, exactly what time you start and finish your warm up. This all falls on the staff. They need to be there just, you know, all ready to, to help you with anything you need. Do you need another water bottle? Do you need an ice vest? Do you need the fan turned off? Do you need, do you have a question about how long it is to your start? And that's, that's what really fatigues the staff on something like this. But I've noticed that the teams that have the best support staff allow the riders to be much more confident and relaxed going into the time trial. If you're kind of just winging it and you forgot to pin on your number and you don't know where your time trial helmet is, that's just wasted energy, right? But the staff, it's their job to make sure that everything's dialed all the way from that time trial helmet to the bike that you're riding to that aero helmet with the special visor that you may want for that day. Who's going to win and how's it going to shake out the GC? I think that you almost have two different races out there today. You have the time trial specialists that could surprise everybody even though I think a lot of them have been doing a lot of effort so far for their leaders, so maybe they don't have the freshest legs. And then you have the, the GC guys. 
And like I said before, the 13th stage of the Tour de France is totally different than the first stage. And, you know, when everyone's starting, starting fresh. So I was really disappointed to hear that Rohan Dennis DNF today. So um, he was my pick, so I'm going to have to move on. You know, you got another uh, time trial specialist like Alex Dowsett, Tony Martin, Chad Haga, Askreen, and Lampart from Decoinic Quick Step. Um, but I think those guys, maybe outside of Dowsett, have, are just really too tired. They've already expended too much energy to be at the top. The one guy that really I'm curious about is Wolf Van Aert. He won the stage in the mm. Dauphiné, the time trial in the Dauphiné. He and his team are obviously flying. It'll be really interesting because he may be on the hot seat for quite a bit because in time trials, they start in reverse general classifications. So Alaphilippe will go last. Um, getting to the, to the GC riders, I mean, everybody has a question mark around their, their name right now. I think Garrett Thomas comes out as the overall favorite if not just for the GC guys, but even for, for the win, he looks quite powerful and coming off the track with his background and having the confidence that, that of being defending champion, he could be very dangerous, but, um, yeah, Alaphilippe, I believe that he's going to be able to, to hold off and he has what one minute and 12 seconds over Thomas. I don't think he'll lose that much time, but there's always the question mark. How is Egon Bernal going to perform in a time trial in a grand tour with the podium on the line? Um, mm. We saw him perform quite well in Tour de Suisse, so that's another question mark. You know, Kreuzwick, Buchmann, Eric Maas, Simon Yates, Quintana, Dan Martin, the, Pino, Conrad, these guys all have to perform today. And there's going to be some surprises and there's going to be some disappointments. I'm especially interested to see if Rich, how Richie Port is really going because you can tell a lot between a time trial with the GC guys, how they're going to perform in the mountains. Because if they can put out that sort of watts on the, on the flats or to the rolling terrain like it is tomorrow, you can pretty much guarantee that they're going to be going pretty good uphill. So, man, getting to the prediction after all that, um, I'm going to go with Alex Dowsett. I think his team hasn't had the best tour this year so far. I haven't seen him on the front. I would like to see him pop off uh, a win in the Tour de France. Alex Dowsett, interesting pick, a TT specialist. Murderer! Yeah, a good, a good shot for the win. I'm going to go a little bit left of center as well and go Michael Hepburn, Heppy. Yeah, I'm on! From Mitchelton Scott. I, uh, I was speaking with Mitch Docker earlier and apparently he was saying that uh, Heppy's been down there and physically reconned the course and he's kind of put a bit of an emphasis on this. So it be interesting to see how, how Heppy does. Yeah, preparation is everything for a day like this. If you've had this in the back of your mind since stage one, you're gonna you're gonna be you you've been subconsciously saving for this. So um, be interesting to see. Yeah, as you just said, there's a lot going on tomorrow in a very short amount of time. I can't wait to get there. It's going to be uh, a great spectacle. Bobby, excellent show. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, to our fans for tuning in for subscribing. Continue to do so. You can get a hold of us at iTunes, on SoundCloud, put your socks on, uh, on Twitter, VeloNews Voices, and on the internet at VeloNews.com. Thank you guys so much. Until tomorrow. Bobby? 
Thanks, Gus. Thanks, Oscar. Great show. And don't forget to put your socks on. Nice one. Is that all good, Eddie? Hell yeah.